Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Sorry for the delay. I got a cold, lost my voice. It's 90% back now. Um, so, yeah, let's jump into this one. Every year, somewhere around Transgender Day of Remembrance, I have an ongoing commitment to make an episode on trans people and their stories. I do this because trans visibility matters. Last year, I started out with a basic thesis. In the days before I put pen to paper, a couple of far-right talking heads were opining the trans phenomenon was something cultural Marxists or postmodernists, or whatever other progressive boogeyman they wanted to tilt at that day had made trans people up to somehow make them look foolish. In response, I spent around half an hour pointing out there have always been people whose gender does not align with one assigned them at birth. In some cases, trans people found tribes of like minds, like the Galli, who worshipped the Phrygian goddess Sibeli. To recap on them a little, the Galli made quite the splash in Rome in 204 BC. Some Roman legions returned from the Second Punic War via Phrygia, modern-day Turkey. And while there, they looted a Phrygian temple. The soldiers stole a statue of Sibeli, a large chunk of sacred black rock from a meteorite, and several galley. One gathers these eunuch priests, or maybe I should say priestesses, became something like celebrities. They were slender, wore makeup, kept their hair long and wore women's clothing. For many Romans, the very sight of these fabulous priestesses unlocked something in them. These galley, at least prior to being enslaved by Romans, were living the life these Roman citizens wanted, deep down in their souls, for themselves. Before long, a number of Roman kids converted to the galley, causing a moral panic in the Republic. Now were we to stay with Rome, we'd be opening a Pandora's box of attitudes towards gender. Rome seems to have picked up much from ancient Greece on this count, and run to some pretty strange places. Take Plato's dialogues. In one dialogue, three Greeks discuss how the Persians have had things far too easy for far too long. This has led, according to Plato's imaginary Greeks, to effeminacy. To ancient Greeks and Romans, this was most notable in their adoption of feminine attire, such as trousers. It was the height of masculinity for Greeks and Romans alike to run into battle wearing a miniskirt or mini-dress. Well, they would have called them chitons or tunics. But one gets the idea. One could look into works like Juvenal's Sixth Satire, where he rails about effeminate foreigners and the like. But I really don't think you need to go beyond the scorn aimed at Pompey the Great, simply for being in love with his wife, Julia. To many Romans, Pompey may as well have been a woman himself. How dare he love and respect his wife in public? Anything beyond cold indifference was suspect to the culture war warriors of their day. One certainly never gave their wife a peck on the cheek in plain sight like Pompey did. That was far too womanly. 
Now I come back to this to point out Rome played a large part in dismantling institutions like the galley, in the Christian world at least. In the Byzantine city of Nicaea in 325 AD, a group of Christian leaders gathered under Emperor Constantine's instructions. They were there to discuss what was and what wasn't Christianity. And while I had a long list to go through, the first topic discussed was priests who were still castrating themselves. Half a millennia after the arrival of the galley, gender nonconformity was still alive and well in religious practice. Now, of course, banning priests from castrating themselves did not lead to trans people disappearing, though it did limit the places gender non-conforming people could gather together, something that didn't really change until the rise of the industrial city in the mid-19th century. This year, I want to discuss the blokes, the fellas. Well, I should be careful with my phrasing. We are discussing historical figures and terms they may not have had, so wouldn't afford of themselves as. But we are talking about the folks assigned female at birth, who adopted a masculine gender identity later in life. And for now, let's stay with the church. In the early days, they seemed far more accepting of trans-masculine figures, as noted by a number of trans-masculine clergy. And the following is far from an exhaustive list. For one, there was Saint Thecla of Iconium, modern-day Turkey. Thecla was a virgin of noble birth who lived in the first century. She fled her upcoming marriage to follow Saint Paul the Apostle. On leaving the husband-to-be, Thecla shaved their head, donned male attire, and lived the rest of their life as a man. Thecla was later sainted for having survived burning at the stake by way of a miraculous storm that doused the flames, and avoided being eaten by wild animals whenever wild animals miraculously rushed out to save him. He lived well into his seventies, living in a cave in Syria, and proselytizing the teachings of Paul, the guy who's believed to have written a good half of the New Testament. Eugenia of Rome was another trans-masculine priest who was still held in high regard by the church. Eugenia was allegedly the daughter of a Roman governor of Egypt called Philippus. In their teens, Eugenia ran away from home, dressed in male attire. He was baptized by the church and taken in. Once in the firm, Eugenia quickly moved up the ranks, making abbot. But the abbot's quiet life was suddenly disturbed in 258 AD, when a married woman made a pass at him. Eugenia rebuffed her approach, causing the woman to claim before a judge that they were in an adulterous relationship. Eugenia was arrested and brought before this judge. Now, according to legend, he was brought before his own father, who recognized Eugenia as his long-lost daughter, and out of spite ordered him to be beheaded. As I say, Romans, funny attitudes. Post-Council of Nicaea, there was Euphrosine of Alexandria, who was brought to a monastery in the 430s to be blessed for her upcoming marriage, but like others, got cold feet and begged to stay on. Saint Marinus was another 5th century monk, in this case, born to a Christian family living in modern-day Lebanon. Legend has it one day his father, Eugenius, announced he was moving to the Kadisha Valley to retire. 
Because of this, his daughter would need to find a husband to look after her. She was distraught with this news, breaking down and stating marriage would be a fate worse than death. Eugenius asked then what should she do then? Marinus's answer, to live the life of a monk at the monastery at Kadisha Valley. Eugenius loved his daughter very much and, let's be honest, probably suspected his child was never meant to be a girl anyway. Father and son moved to the valley together. The other brothers at the monastery presumed Marinos, who spoke softly, must have been a eunuch but was very definitely a man, and accepted him into the fold. Saint Marinos is remembered today by trans people of faith and their parents as the patron saint of transparenting. And I could go on, but I do want to change direction a little. And I should first address an elephant in the room. Right now we're on this meandering trip through trans history, and trust me, by next year's trans episode, we'll no longer be meandering. And I've made this claim that there have always been trans people. Now I think historically trans women have always had a much harder time of it than trans men in one way. And that is, there is a loss of male privilege in play. And I'm a little mindful this year, I'm setting up example after example of people assigned female, who for the most part gain privilege through transitioning. Well, okay, St. Eugenia's tale was unfortunate. But on the whole, I think trans men can get this pull factor aimed at them as a weapon. Oh, he's only just transitioning because it's an easier life being a man and so forth. Well, while no one can speak for every single trans man in history, I would counter with, First, that carrying a secret around for a lifetime would be taxing for most people. And if you add to that, if that secret put you in a position where you had to inhabit a gender role diametrically opposed to your true, authentic self, well, that would be crushing, right? To disguise your real self from the world, while putting on this false face for all and sundry, it would create a crushing sense of, well, gender dysphoria in these people, would it not? Let's discuss American soldiers for a few minutes that might give us a different perspective. In both the American War of Independence and the American Civil War, there was no shortage of female assigned people signing up to fight, having taken on a male identity. In the Civil War, there were a number of troops on both sides in that conflict. Now these are far from the only conflicts in history where this happened. But it is notable that many of these women who fought and never claimed to be trans in any way uh, did return to a womanly existence at the end of their service. This is in spite of having inhabited a masculine role and no doubt seen all the benefits that come along with living in a man's world. Well, let's take Deborah Sampson. Born in Plimpton, Massachusetts to a pilgrim family, Deborah had a difficult early life. Her father died at sea, leaving her mother with seven children to bring up. Utterly destitute, Deborah's mother gave all the children away to different homes, leading to Deborah entering indentured servitude at the age of ten. At the outset of the War of Independence, Deborah was free of her servitude, and though uneducated, had conned her way into a teaching job. But by 1782, she took it upon herself to sign up to fight the English. The military being a boys club, 
she took up the identity of one Robert Shirtliff. Deborah served with distinction with the 4th Massachusetts Regiment. She fought several battles against the English, collecting a handful of wounds as she went. Not wanting to be caught out, she sewed up a gash to her own forehead on one occasion, dug some musket shot out of her own thigh on another. But around a year and a half into active service, an epidemic of some description swept through the camp. When she passed out one day, others took her to the medics, who rumbled Deborah. Deborah Sampson was honorably discharged from the army soon after. But here's the thing, despite all of the struggle of her former life, and a good year and a half of just being one of the boys with all the benefits that entailed, and without any of the pull factors of a family to come back to, Deborah, a cisgender person, immediately resumed life as a woman. By 1785, she married a man named Benjamin Garrett. The couple, a picture of cisgender normativity, had three children together and stayed together till Deborah's passing in 1827. Now compare and contrast with Albert Cashier. He was one of 400 documented cases of people born female who fought in the Civil War. Only once transitioned, he had no intention of going back. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Albert's early life. We know he was born in Ireland on Christmas Day, 1843. We know his dead name, but I'm not saying it. We know in August, 1862, Albert was living in Belvedere, Illinois, when he signed up to fight for the Union's 95th Illinois Infantry. Albert fought bravely in over 40 battles including the Siege of Vicksburg, the Battle of Nashville, and the Red River Campaign. He may have been captured by Confederates at one point, soon after overpowering a guard and escaping back to his own regiment. Albert appears to have been extremely formidable. Post-war, he found work as a farmhand, a janitor, a gravedigger, and a street lamplighter. He passed, or in other words, he was never clocked as trans until he was hit by a car in 1910. While receiving treatment for a broken leg, Albert was caught out. Now this incident was not the end of Albert Cashier, however. He begged and pleaded with the hospital, and they decided not to give up his secret. But his secret was eventually uncovered in 1913, when he started showing early signs of dementia. A physical evaluation gave away the game, leading to his incarceration in a mental health facility. In his final years, locked up in an asylum, Albert was put through the indignity of being forced to wear women's clothing. As an aside, the dress reform movement, spearheaded in the 1850s by people like Amelia Bloomer, who felt the restrictiveness of traditional women's clothing robbed them of equal opportunities with men. Well, that led to a series of clothing laws being enacted across the USA. People like Albert were not the reason for these laws, but some suffered terribly for them. He was also forced to re-adopt his dead name, and investigated for fraud for having drawn down his war pension. And while we're in this neck of the woods, I should briefly mention Joseph Lobdell and Charlie Parkhurst. Joseph had a rough life, in his early years, he was married to an abusive deadbeat named George Washington Slater. The couple had a daughter together, and then George abandoned his family. He was later killed very early on in the American Civil War 
providing Joseph a war pension. Sometime after this, Joseph transitioned. He found love with a woman named Marie Perry, and the couple married, but they spent much of their lives in crushing poverty. Joseph found whatever work he could as a hunter, the thing he's most known for these days, and as a singing teacher. But he was outed on a number of occasions, one time landing a lengthy stay in Willard Insane Asylum. I don't think I need to outline how hellish asylums were at this time. But Charlie Parkhurst, on the other hand, had a far luckier run of things. Even if his origin story was also a little rough. Born in New England in 1812, he was often young and ran away aged 12. He adopted the name Charlie and found work caring for horses. Charlie was lucky to find a mentor, who taught him how to work with horses, and who also thought of him as a son. Charlie moved to California in his 30s, just as the gold rush kicked off. He found a well-paying job as a stagecoach driver. He lived the everyday life of a Wild West cowboy, till he passed on in his 60s of tongue cancer. Charlie was never outed till after his death. Following his passing, his obituary from the San Francisco Call caught the eye of reporters at the New York Times, who ran the piece as an article. He was in his day one of the most dexterous and celebrated of the famous California drivers, ranking with Foss, Hank Monk, and George Gordon, and it was an honor to be striven for to occupy the spare end of the driver's seat. When the fearless Charlie Parkhurst held the reins of a four or a six in hand. Last Sunday, December 28, 1879, in a little cabin on the Moss Ranch, about six miles from Watsonville, Charlie Parkhurst, the famous coachman, the fearless fighter, the industrious farmer and expert woodman, died of a cancer on his tongue. He knew that death was approaching but he did not relax the reticence of his later years, other than to express a few wishes as to certain things to be done at his death. Then, when the hands of the kind friends who administered to his dying wants came to lay out the dead body of the adventurous Argonaut, a discovery was made that was literally astounding. Charlie Parkhurst was a woman. The friends who wrote the obituary couldn't have understood the intricacies of the transgender experience. And yes, they outed him. But I think in retrospect, there is something there that speaks to the love and respect they had for him in the piece. Which leads me back to one final short tale. Now, I first came across this story in a Reader's Digest mystery book from my childhood. But for the most part, I made notes from Nate Hale's excellent podcast, The Conspirators. Go check out his episode, The Secret Life of Pope Joan, in the liner notes. He does the story way better than I could. So our scene today takes place in Rome. The date? Easter weekend, 858 AD. An Easter procession is about to kick off from St. Peter's Basilica. At the head of the procession, the well-loved Pope John Anglicus. Legend has it the procession towards the Lateran Cathedral started off just like any other year. The parade, and all its finery, made its way through the large, exuberant crowds of adoring onlookers. With Pope-mobiles more than a millennia away, 
A German-born pope rode atop a well-groomed steed. Somewhere along the procession, Pope John doubled over in pain, tumbling from the steed. A crowd gathered around the pontiff to see if he was all right. Legend has it the crowd gasped when they discovered not only was the Pope pregnant, his water had broken, and he'd gone into labour in their midst. Now from here, the tale goes one of two ways. One telling has the crowd whipped up into a frenzy. They turned on the Pope, beating and stoning him for the deception. At some point in the assault, someone tied the Pope to his horse. No word on whether the horse was gelding, mare or stallion. Then they sent the animal off at a gallop. In that version, Pope John got dragged to his death. Another version of the story states John was deposed, possibly imprisoned or exiled just to get him out of the way, and that child grew up to become a high-ranking clergyman in his own right. Now this story did not appear until the mid-1200s, when the chronicler Jean de Mali shared the tale in the Chronicle of Metz. It is essentially akin to a hagiography, and like all hagiographies, it should be approached with deep suspicion. All the same, it is intriguing. Jean told the story of a young woman, possibly named Joan, who was born in Metz. She was very bright, and the sky may have been the limit for her today. But in the 9th century, Joan's gender limited her options. Having either first fallen in love with higher learning, and then with a local Benedictine monk, or perhaps vice versa, she disguised herself as a man and took holy orders. After some time, Joan's lover was sent to Athens to study. Joan, now John, followed. From there, the couple moved to Rome, where John caught the eye of a top brass for his skill as a preacher. In 855 AD, Pope Leo IV passed on. Not long after having met with Ethelwulf, King of Wessex, and his seven-year-old son, Alfred, who of course grew up to become Alfred the Great. Following his passing, a conclave was called, and John Anglicus was the winner. Indications are the reign of Pope John was going just fine until he became pregnant, one presumes to his lover from Metz. While the general consensus is there was no Pope Joan, it is fascinating that from around 1250 until the Reformation of the early 16th century, People took this tale as gospel. And there is still some evidence suggesting the legend of Pope Joan could have really happened. A bust of him may have existed until it was repurposed into a bust of Pope Zachary in the 1600s. Also, the list of popes named John gets extremely messy. There's no official Pope John XX. Now this is probably due to there being two John XIVs so whoever counts John skipped a number to make things right. But to make it all the more confusing, a 10th century anti-pope, John XVI got left on a number of lists. His removal further threw the numbering of the Johns into chaos. And people have also questioned whether a Popes Tarakard was a representation of Pope Joan. There was also a legend of a marble chair apparently brought in after Joan to ensure no more female popes could slip past him. Allegedly, the chair had a hole in the seat, and a cardinal was supposed to reach up through the hole 
feel for the Pope's testicles, and then pronounce, Duos habit et benependentis, translated as he has two, and they dangle nicely. Others point to silver coins from the 870s that carried the Pope's initials on one side. At this time, the Pope was another John, the Eighth in this case. John the Eighth appears to have had a colourful reign, trying and failing to stop the Saracens from taking land in the south of Italy, scorning the Carolingian dynasty, and getting far too friendly with the Byzantines. John VIII would eventually be poisoned and then clubbed to death when the poison took too long by his own people. While the signature does change from his earlier to his later coins, suggesting there might have been two Pope Johns between 872 and 882. But regardless, it suggests to me the legend was believable for so long, because there had been a number of trans clergy up to this point. Enough that perhaps even if you didn't know one yourself, you'd heard of the phenomenon. And it also strikes me as quirky that, while a cautionary tale, people didn't state Pope John was incompetent, evil, or an agent of Satan. Plenty of popes were called out after the fact for all manner of actions they probably didn't engage in, just to ruin their reputation. However medieval people felt about a female pontiff, they felt no need, it seems, to accuse Pope John of anything diabolical. In fact, he was only given the Damnatio Memoriae treatment following the Protestant Reformation, when the Catholic Church decided it needed to put a few skeletons back in their closets. Now, clearly, the Catholic Church did get some increasingly ugly attitudes towards the rainbow community in the wider sense over time. But all the same, their attitudes towards the transmasculine clergy in those early days, that it's quite curious. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.